Today is Monday, uh, November 15th, uh, 2021, and it's been a very hot morning for me. I walked into my office uh, at about 6.10, and a minute later the phone rang. A dear student of 50 years, or 50, you know, I'm hearing a slight echo, so it has to be slightly less. Uh, Dr. Norman Gold died. His funeral will be uh, later today in the New York area. And uh, I, first, I first met Normie uh, in BMT in one of the very early years. Alan, w Elliot, was he there? No, it's maybe the year. I think he was in BMT 7374 uh, because. Uh, the Madrich was killed in the war, and uh, he was very close to Cyril Birnbaum. Every year he would write about him for Yom Hazikaron. And uh, we remained in touch uh, from that date until today. He also was one of the Chayot, as they called the Chayas, that uh, surrounded Mayor Kahana. And he was a very able person. It, it troubled him to see injustice in the world. And uh, he didn't have an easy life. Uh, but on Baruch Hashem, he left uh, children and grandchildren, Kulam Shoretoru Mitzvah, although I think the kids uh, went beyond him. And... Uh, to a certain degree, uh, were not happy with their father because he wore a kippah shrugat, but Hakima But Baruch Hashem, Shem Torah Mitzvahs, that's what counts. Okay, I want to obviously, Yom um, still hear an echo. It, it, is there a reason why? I want to obviously uh, dedicate today's year in Naftali Gold and Normi Gold's memory. Now it's okay. Um, I've already gotten a lot of comments on yesterday's shear, and as I told you in advance, yesterday's shear was only to open the thought process. If there's a solution to the problem, it will take 50 years of study. But to think that the Rambam uh, changed his mind, or Rashi, uh, no, that's not the answer. And I have what to say on the answer, but to say it properly would take uh, seven years. To say it in a few minutes, it could very well be that uh, this is a machloket between Rav Shemshaful Hirsch and between Mori and Rebbe. Uh, if you read the Rav, volume two, where I translate the Rav's talk from Yiddish into English, why? He loves Yeshiva University, and where in is he different than Rav Hirsch? You have a bit of insight there. According to Rav Hirsch, there's no question that Torah Derech Eretz was God's will. It's a lachatchila, it's not a b'diyevet, it's not a compromise. It has nothing to do with the society in which you live. And this was Rav Hirsch, Torah Derech Eretz. Yafta lakim liyefet v'yishkom sheng. It could be that Mori Rebbe, uh, if we could have a beautiful world like Anaden and the angels would do everything for us as the Medjish Rabbah describes, we would only learn Torah. But because of the realities of life, we have to engage in both. 
I think if I can paraphrase the Rav's point of view in my own words, it all comes back to Maimed HaSinai. Did we accept the Torah by choice, Nasev Nishma, or as the Gemara says, Kofan Aleihem Kegigit, we were pinned against the wall, if you don't accept the Torah, Potaheikuratchem. And there are times in life when we accept the Torah with joy and happiness. I can never forget uh, the in, in November uh, 47 when the UN voted partition. And I remember my rabbeim in Yeshiva Salanta dancing and crying. At that moment you said, Nasev Nishma. When you uh, look at the Holocaust, if you were like Rabbi Heschel Shechta with the liberating troops of Buchenwald, Believe me, you can't say Nasev Nishma, all you can say is Kofman Leim Kharkegigit, we Jewish people have no choice. This is the reality for us, Atabachatanu. And it could be that uh, there are certain times in life where we put more stress on Torah, there are certain times in life where we have to put equal stress on uh, Umanut, as Rashi calls it, as the Gemara calls it, as the Rambam calls it. But it's a, a wide open question. Where do you draw the line? How do you balance it out? And ultimately I would say it's up to the individual. Each one has to find his own place on the spectrum according with his own lifestyle, what, what is his abilities. And no two people are alike. I want to call your attention. This is a uh, magazine which is now coming out in Israel Hamakom. This is the eighth issue. I have the ninth as well. And uh, this magazine is very interesting. It's geared for Haredim coming out into academia, coming out into the work market. And it deals with, very, very, it's very fascinating to read because you can see from their point of view, we grew up in Toru Madar and YU, in, in that type of environment, we never had a problem. It was very natural to live in both worlds. But here you see their problems, but the magazine certainly has one basic theme. There is no way we can stop the process. When we had 10,000 Jews sitting and learning, we could uh, support them. Today, can I inherit? I don't know, there are hundreds of thousands sitting and learning. And there's a limit how much you can support. You have to work. And this is all part of the process. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for their kind words about yesterday's shear. I have to say it means a great deal to me to know that uh, shear more appreciated. All right, now, let me come into today. Um, regarding, uh, we spoke about mikvah, and I made the point that uh, the mikvah ladies, the baloniot, the baloniot, if I'm pronouncing it right, you have to be very careful how you approach the woman and you can make or break the mitzvah of mikvah. And uh, I also made the point that one of my great shocks in coming aliyah, this goes all the way back to 69, I learned that more women from go to mikvah than a Shomrat Shabbat. In America, anyone who went to Mikvah was only a Shomrat Shabbat. And here, Baruch Hashem, we have many women going to Mikvah who need to improve other aspects of their life. So one of my Talmudim in America, listening to this year, 
<laughs> told me a fabulous story that uh, he's from Lawrence and, you know, he wears a uniform and uh, he was at a hotel in Tiberias with his wife. And Erev Shabbos, his wife, they're in the, uh, the lounge, what would you call it, the, the, the entrance to the hallway, the lobby, and uh, two Svadiyad come over to her thinking, you know, she's hair is covered, they think she's a Rebetzin, all right. And they asked her if she would go with them to Mikvah and at night they're going to be tovlat in the, in, in the Kineret, in the Yam HaKineret. And she couldn't get over these women. They didn't look from, they weren't dressed from. One had tattoos on her. Yom and I got into a whole discussion whether that tattoo was a chatzitsa, not so simple. Yomo differentiated between the two different ways. They, he gave me a whole shear, how he knows so much I don't know, gave me a whole shear in uh, the two different ways they do tattoos. Some are in the pigment that it's really deep and some is just surface. So Yomo felt where it's really deep, it's a chatzitsa, where it's, uh, where, it's on, where it's on the surface, it's a chatzitsa. But when it's really deep, it's part of you, it's not a chatzitsa. And these women were, one woman went with a loose-fitting uh, gown, uh, and, and, and the women were fighting with each other, what her rabbi, what this never, but halachalamaisa, my Talmud said it was a shock that more women, they saw it with his own eyes. I also want to mention, uh, have a comment, Howie Mizell. He's from the early years of BMT, and he lives in uh, Efrat today. And uh, he mentions that his daughter is involved with in an organization founded by Naomi Grumet. Naomi Grumet, Sri Grumet, was my Talmud in this very Kolel, 8081. And his wife founded an organization. Aiden, I guess it's a play on words, may Aiden, to make mikvah more popular, to explain it, to, to make the whole experience more inspiring. And uh, my Talmud's daughter they, is part of this organization. They sent me a video that's, uh, uh, you know, publicity on what they're doing and what feel of the mikvah and what it's all about. So, Baruch Hashem. I also want to mention the question that... Uh, Jack asked me about the husband stepping back, the woman is more famous, so here you have, again, I read these alonim, my wife laughs me, what are you wasting your time, but I gain a lot, I gain, I understand what's going on outside of Gris Kolel. So here's, uh, this is from a week ago, I believe, yeah, Pasha told us he lived that, and uh, Shlifat, they interview a lady named Hada Miller. This is this is Hada Miller, and she's uh, uh, a very successful public relations uh, TV personality, and she speaks about her husband, Eitan Ish High Tech, Ben Adamim Levanak, Haben Zugi Hachimatim Shef Selavakesh Olam, Mufagain Libitiruf. And yes, yes, this is, uh, we men were raised, uh, I understand this, we men were raised, the man, we're the center of the world. 
And sometimes you're married to a woman who is infinitely more of a personality and, and can speak and can lead and can teach and can preach. So you have to know how to stay in high tech, do your work in the background, and rejoice in your wife's success. Not every man can do this, but uh, this is a, a prime example and, and an answer. Uh, there are men like that, and Ralph Mishulamir Rice was one. Then I was asked another question. Does the fact that uh, Esther Jungreis was a lady, uh, did that enhance her ability to speak, to teach, to impress? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, because the mother, the, the feminine personality in our lives is the seed, the root of all our success. Chazal say in the Medrash Rabbah, Hakol Haisha. And there's no two ways about it that Im Zacha, he Eza Kinegdo. Im Lo Zacha, Kinegdo. You know what Chazal say. And there's a lot of truth to this. And in working out a happy marriage, a man has to know, I, will, I, I think I've told you, I told all my grandsons, when you get married, you don't have an opinion. You decide whether to bomb Iran, you decide how to deal with Iraq, you decide who should be president of the United States, but all the minor decisions, you leave to your wife. So there's no question that the Esther Jungreis represented a mother, a feminine personality. Now, not every man can respond to that. There are people who you have to smack their face, but they're the minority. You're never going to win all. This is something I learned in life. It's frustrating. It's upsetting to me. But you never kol banayich limudi Hashem. The Rebbe used to say, "Is only be mota Mashiach." Adaz halavai rose banayich. Okay. Now, one other point I want to make on past lectures that um, one of my uh, Talmidim who's listening, so uh, he also he read the book that I'm citing from, and he, he agreed with me, it's very disjointed to write, they're in a concentration camp, and one sentence later, they're in Switzerland, and no mention of Kastner whatsoever. Now, it could be it's an Art Scroll policy. In other words, Art Scroll admits publicly they don't tell the truth, they don't tell the facts, it's what we want uh, the people, it's what we want Zach to believe happened. But... Uh, they want to inspire, right? We, we, right, right. And we all know the criticisms. Uh, I just saw it again. I'm reading a volume by by Benjamin Brown. His volumes are fabulous. He has two volumes on the Haredi world. I mean, the Chazonish is classic. His doctorate. I, I'd love to meet him. He's a, I, an unbelievably knowledgeable person. I, I, I would love to hug him. How much I appreciate his writings and. He evidently has a YU connection because his work in Chasonish was published by Hebrew U and Kadoza Law School of YU. The, Hebrew, the, the doctorate was done at uh, Hebrew U, I, I don't know, but evidently he taught at Kadoza. He's one of these people who are, you know, know everything. There's like Ruven Margolis, if you heard the name. There's certain individuals, their knowledge is breathtaking to the Babacher Rebbe, etc. So, um, he, he also makes that point. Could be Art Scroll has a policy, since Kastner is such a controversial individual, 
And look who the heck his granddaughter is today, Mechav Michali. I mean, she knows as much about Torah and Yiddishkeit and how the state of Israel came to be as I know about Chinese history from the Byzantine period. So it could be that it's part of their policy. But nevertheless, if anyone meets the author, I would love to ask him the question, uh, why is that left out? I mean, it's so disjointing. Anyone who reads it with a little intelligence is going to ask the question. Now, let's come back. Today's shear, there's one part that goes way beyond the shear of, of, of its importance. But let's come back to Madison Square Garden. There's no question that... Um, Madison Square Garden uh, was the biggest moment in Esther's life. And uh, uh, it's fabulous that this Wall family from Lawrence, well, I don't know if they were totally orthodox, and uh, I heard already from a Talmud who's related to the family some of the problems in the family and how Esther Jungreich got involved. And it brings me to the whole story of Mr. Gruss and the Rav, but it's, that's not for publication. Not everything has to be told. It's, uh, people have problems in life, and the intermarriage is all over the place. And if you can talk someone out of intermarrying, it's the greatest gift you can give that family. And that's, I'm alluding to the Rav and Mr. Gruss's children, and I'm alluding to as well if if what the relative writes about his great uncle and his great aunt, the walls. And uh, he, he, he describes his uncle and aunt, and he, uh, he knew that his great uncle and great aunt were wealthy. It's not everyone you know who has a Van Gogh hanging in their library. Okay? Can you imagine the walls owned an original Van Gogh? No, we don't have to say anything further. It's obvious that such an individual could cover the expenses of Madison Square Garden. Well, the Rebbitson went, and the Rebbitson was successful, and basically it's, uh, it's the woman involved. The man listened with, the, uh, with maybe one ear, an ear and a half, but he wasn't carried away by the idea but his wife said, if need be, I'll sell my jewelry, and Madison Square Garden becomes alive. Now, I'm quoting again from the volume on the Rebbitson, beginning on page 80. And there are no footnotes here. I would love to know where he got the sources, what's interviewed, what is in manuscript. But once again, we come back to what Esther Jungreich said, and you can actually hear this on YouTube. Here she is in the garden. This is what she said when she visited Newburgh. And this is what the people who heard her, Roy and Linda, were blown away by. You are a Jew. You have created civilizations. You have been a citizen of every nation. You have given birth to every ideal and have shaped mankind. Justice, peace, love, and the innate dignity of man have all had their genesis in your Torah. But above all, you have been given the unique mission of proclaiming the oneness of God. And she started to speak about the Bible and what she was essentially doing, speaking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and how these people 
were able to thrive and pass on Judaism. And what she was doing, and this is absolutely true, when you talk about outreach, what is the main theme that we hit upon that the average person, welcome, 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 it's okay, that the average person will see nowhere else. And that's our whole conflict with Western civilization, our whole conflict with the New York Times. The average child born in the 20th century, the 21st century, all these taught is here now. There's no concern with the past and little concern with tomorrow. You saw what went on now with the climate and read all the newspapers and uh, have a Talmudah sends me uh, the economic review. Uh, the, she gets very sophisticated magazines and the average person couldn't care less what will be in 50 years, who gives a darn, or let me have my plastic bottles and my paper goods, etc., etc. And, and all right, on that level it's minor, but on the other hand, when you take the attitude, do whatever you want, uh, eat whatever you want, live a sexual life uh, worse than a dog or a cat, a thousand times worse, and, and who cares? I'm not harming anyone. Consenting adults, that's the expression. And then we come along and say we have a past, and, and this is what the Rebbitson is hitting. If you have a past, you have to be concerned for a future. Will Jews be here tomorrow? What will be after Hitler? And this hit home. And here's the answer to the question about a woman, and it was all the more powerful by virtue of the fact that the initial speaking was a Jewish woman, a wife, mother, daughter, and sister. At that moment, the Rebbitson connected to every Jewish mother throughout history, joining them as they exhorted their children to never forget who they were and what they would become. She spoke from her soul, every word committed to memory, no paper before her, no notes on a lectern, just her thoughts and her words piercing every individual right in the heart. And this was a major moment in the history of Torah outreach. And here's the picture that I told you so much about. This picture really hits home. It's a typical boy and girl, could be a Stern College girl, a Yeshiva College boy. The girl is crying. And the boy is looking at the Rebbitson very seriously. I'd love to know if anyone could identify this picture, who they are, page 83, and where they are today. Zach, I'm telling you, you want to do something constructive, take the picture of the quintessential picture of the Rav teaching. A guy named Rakefit worked years to identify everyone in that class. It's 61 years ago, 1960. Take off two years and do research. The class of 1960 revisited. Be fascinating. Where they were, where they are, what they achieved during their life. And here, the Rebison has hit home and, and endless, endless Balei Chuba came out of this public event. There was singing, 
they were dancing. Singers sang Aniyam Ma'amin. It was so powerful, so real. It was impossible to have been there and to have remained untouched. And she told one of the stories, and this too comes out of the myriad of stories we have on the Holocaust of the greatness of Jews. She described an old man waiting in line to be sent to the fires of death and how he took his last drops of water and instead of using the precious liquid to quench his thirst, poured the water over his hands to purify them and then recited the timeless words of Shema Yisrael. The crowd started to dance. They danced in the aisles. They danced at back of the room. They danced wherever they found the space. And at that moment, Hineni was born. From there they go to Kehillat Jeshurun, the Upper East Side. She speaks classes once a week, twice a week. From there they buy a building on the Upper West Side. And this is how the movement began and became influential until today. There's still, she has one daughter that I heard on uh, YouTube. She's just like the mother. Except for the slight Hungarian accent, you look at her and she's taller than the mother. She didn't suffer during her crucial years where she couldn't get proper food, but she today uh, runs what we have in America, one, one, one daughter lives here in, in, uh, in Israel, and I believe the rest of the family lives in Lawrence, but it was all born at that moment. Now, if you don't believe me that this happened, here is a stub of a very ticket, November 18th, 5724-1973, 7.30pm, Felt Forum, Madison Square Garden, Section 208, Row G, Seat 10. Mark, where were you at that moment? This is, this is the stub of his ticket of entry. And here you have the Hineni button marks, but where did you get the button? Was it already distributed at the garden already? Wow, wow, wow. And, and it's very powerful because you can interpret it. It's a Jewish star with the flames in it. You can interpret it many different ways. It, it can be uh, flames represent Torah, flames represent Nishama, or flames represent Holocaust, struggle, they want to get rid of us, and yet the Jewish star survives. Very powerful. I mean, this was the Rebetzin, a lot of understanding. Now, what happened at Madison Square Garden? What is it about? I just want to clue you in, because she did not fill Madison Square Garden proper. Madison Square Garden proper, you don't rent. It's... Uh, Basketball is there. I think uh, hockey is played there. What else? Uh, it's uh, you can't play baseball there. You can't play football. But uh, these other sports, uh, boxing can be there. Wrestling can be there. 
But what they did is underneath the big Madison Square Garden, they built the theater. It was called the Felt Forum. Why was it called the Felt Forum? Because the person who built the theater, the president of the whole Madison Square Corporation, was a nice Jew named Erwin Felt. F-E-L-T. And in his honor, they called it the Felt Forum. It went through many different title changes. And today, if you open up a New York magazine where it tells what's going on in New York and all you'll see at the Hula Theater, H-U-L-U. And I wondered, what's the Hula Theater? It turns out this is the name of, like, Netflix. They say it's the second big to Netflix. And they're involved in entertainment, and they own the Felt Forum today. So when you hear the word Felt Forum, or you hear the word Hula Theater, don't let anyone fool you. The Hula Theater is the same felt forum. It can hold six to 8,000 people, depending upon how many chairs they put in. And the Rebbitson filled it that night to an overflowing crowd. Now, if you think this is only important to a guy like Rakefet or Wiener, we love Torah, we love Yiddishkeit, so you should know in the history of the garden, November 18, 1973, Rangers game with a question mark? No! Rebbitson, Esther Jungreich, packs the Felt Forum and delivers what might be considered the first mass Jewel, Jewish revival meeting ever. This concert album, they show the album that was put out that, that I said to you, uh, part of this is on um, uh, YouTube today. This concert right, album features an impassioned, at times crying and screaming delivery on the need for Jews to return to Judaism, not intermarry, not become secular hippies, lest they cause a spiritual holocaust. Jungreich, a survivor of the actual Holocaust, went on to become a leader in the Balchuba, returned to Orthodox Judaism movement in the United States and worldwide. The show is interspersed with rousing renditions of Shema Yisrael, Anima Min, and other prayer and folk songs. So you see, it's not just here, it's a whole history. You have the rock and roll people who were there, the famous non-Jewish artists, beatniks, etc. And in that grand company, you have the Rebbitson. Now, yeah. Before I go further, I want to come back to... uh, certain problems we've dealt with this morning. I just got a compliment from a very prominent rabbi that you're the only one who describes Meir Kahane, gets Meir Kahane correct. I don't know if I'm the only one, and I don't know if I'm totally correct, but uh, I, I try to do justice, absolutely. So do you know what you walked into here? Yeah. 
this is a class, you know when this class began? 1978. And the last 11 years have been the history of Torah in the United States. And uh, you remember when we don't make Ahana, we had one tremendous problem. What the problem that is raised all the time in Israel, uh, beat up the Arabs, kill the Arabs, shoot the Arabs, act outside the law, import your own guns, all right? Is it all true, these accusations? No. But some of them, there's no question, Mayor sat in jail in Israel because he didn't observe the rules of the police. You deal with Shlomo Kalbach, we have the problem of his sexual conduct. And we dealt with all this in detail. I said about the Rebbitzin, really with the Rebbitzin, there's no critique at all you have to deal with. And of course, compared to Mayer and compared to Schleimler, I'm correct. I'll tell you the one critique that came out against the Rebbitzin, and uh, I have to tell you my feelings, and I've discussed this with my wife many times. The critique was very simple, and I've heard this in other occasions, other people. Who do they deal with? Wealthy people. Where did the Rebbitzin wind up? She wound up KJ, the Upper East Side. Now, KJ, you know, I can tell you one little story. Morty, you're going to think I made it up? Absolutely not. A very prominent medical doctor, one of my best friends ever, Dr. Bernard Kabakowski, Ronald Evrach. You're talking a doctor every year, New York, they select. 100 top doctors. Every year there's Bernard Kabakow, the top, uh, one of the top cancer specialists in, in the world, let alone New York. So Sunday morning he's playing tennis with another doctor, prominent doctor. You know, typical American Jew didn't know too much about Yiddishkeit. And he says to him when they're finished, you know what, let's wash up. I'll take you to shul this morning. It's Sunday morning. And he takes him to KJ. Do you know that threw them out because they didn't have jackets and ties? I wish I was making this up. You know, you're talking about KJ. As Rakefeda said, when you daven and when you say Baruchu there, a hundred billion dollars are bending over and saying Baruchu. Would you at least a hundred billion? you got to know who Dobbins did today. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right, they give tremendous stock up. Now, then you wind up on the Upper West Side. All right, Charlie, I don't think the Upper West Side is as wealthy as the Upper East Side, but I haven't seen too many paupers living on the Upper West Side either, the Daila Hakima. So she winds up there once a year. So, look, and, and I heard criticism. Who did she go to? The Walls and Lawrence... I'll tell you, in order to perpetuate what we believe and reach out, you need a fortune of money. And paupers like Rakefet are not able to fund it. You inevitably have to be friendly with the wealthy people. This takes us back to the rabbinate. Time and again, you'll see the rabbi. The average Jew is treated nice. But the Jew who runs and supports and pays the rabbi's salary, 
inevitably, Adam Karevets a lot smoke, you're going to treat him a little better. And I, I can't consider this a major criticism. What I can say is, Kolakavol to the OU. And this, too, is one of the greatest achievements on American soil. Over the years, hundreds of millions of dollars have been plowed back from Kashrut, from profit, and CSY. I once sat with the top people in the OU, and they told me their estimation is to make one kid from cost $50,000. Send him to Israel, run the camp, this, meetings. I mean, everything is run. They charge peanuts. It's subsidized. You got to give credit to the OU. You got to give credit to what they do, but you'll take Chabad. I heard this criticism against Chabad many times. Chabad, you come in, you're a simple guy. Oh, but when a multimillionaire comes in, Chase, Mr. Chase, all right. I saw in Florida, uh, don't want to mention names, they're not that from, but they give heavily to Chabad, all right. Can we criticize? All right, I leave the question open. I'm not here to give you a black and white answer, but these are the realities of life. Okay, we have arrived. What, what's your first name? Maury. Maury. Last name? Rosenfeld. Rosen Feld. Feld. Are you here permanent or just a sightseer today? Permanent. Uh, I'm having miracles. Some people are still interested beyond uh, everyone on the screen or people have been with me for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Maury Rosenfeld. And where are you, where are you from? Where The whole crowd, everyone is with me. Oh, wow. Okay. Where's Natan? He's in Woodmere, he's here. What's going on? Okay, we have arrived. And uh, this is a simple story. But this is one of the deepest lessons any public speaker can ever have. And I can tell you in my own life how many times I've acted just like the Robertson. Things go wrong. You can get all upset and all that will be remembered is you're upset, you're yelling. I remember I had Rebbeim. They fly off the handle. I remember every time they flew off the handle until today, 60, 70 years later. The Rav, I have to tell you, in the, the, he used to, he once at Maria, I have him on tape, where he says, yeah, yeah, face. He says, I know, I know I have a bad temper. He says, I'm trying to correct it, but it doesn't help. <laughs> and everyone broke into laughter. But sometimes things go wrong that you can't control. And to utilize it, it's the greatest gift that you will have. And the audience, you can have them eating out of your hand. And here's an unbelievable story. Again, I wish we would know the sources where he got these stories, because he couldn't interview the Rebbitson. This book was written, the Rebbitson is dead already uh, since 2016, if I'm correct. 
This book was written the last few years, but I'm quoting from page 25. Now, as you know, Shlomo Levine got the Rebetzin involved with Israel. And uh, although uh, her Hebrew was, uh, you know, not, not up the par of a native Israeli, she could manage in Hebrew. And in Israel, you can always throw in an English word. Uh, everyone here knows English. Even if it's only a high school level English, but they know English. So the fact that she was the Rebetzin and a woman spoke with fervor and meaning, they brought her here and brought her back and brought her back and she lectured all over the place. And here she's just concluded a meeting with Prime Minister Menachem Begin. So this must have happened late 70s, early 80s. And um, she was leaving his room, his office, and suddenly the people with her said her call has just come in and they'd like you to give a talk it's not far from here and what was the request not an army base not a government office not a school but Ramla prison to speak to the women incarcerated at Ramla prison the army officer who was driving her said to her, Kvot HaRabanit, this is one invitation you should turn down. Why should I turn it down, she asked him. You just walked out of a meeting with the Rosh Mem Shalah and then you're going to go to a prison and, and meet with prisoners? It's, it's beneath your dignity. And the Rebetzin answered, Nothing is beneath my dignity. The girls in Rambler prison are Benos Yisrael, Hashem's daughter. I would never turn down such an invitation. If you insist, he replied dubiously. Okay. They transferred from a jeep to a police car that had been sent by the National Prison Authority of Israel, their group drove out of Jerusalem and down Highway 1 in the direction of Tel Aviv, taking the exit for Ramla, a dusty, half-forgotten city that just lies a hop, a skip, and a jump from the country's most prestigious neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. Ramla, Savion, uh, North Tel Aviv, Ramat Sharon. You're not that far from the heart of the money in Israel. Okay, slowly her daughter was sitting in back of the police van where the bars are, you know, they have criminals, and she uh, was not that happy to be sitting there and looking out through the bars. It was a short ride, but she was happy when she was let out when they arrived. Now, the Ramla prison for women was located in an old stone building that was shaped like a square with a large courtyard in the center. It had been used by the British military as a prison when they ruled the country. And now it's being used as a prison for women. I don't know if whether it still exists today. Uh, there's a, a, there's a very big prison for women down south. And uh, 
you got to remember this was a hot day and the, all the women, the prisoners are out in the lawn awaiting the Rebbitzin and uh, as they approach they reach the prison's front gate the gate slowly rolls, rolls open the Rebbitzin and Slovi stepped over and into the shadowy fort forecourt but her aide de camp Barbara Janoff didn't realize that when you come in through the gate there's an iron bar at the bottom of the gate on the floor that doesn't roll over that you have to step over and she was carrying all the Rebbitson's equipment the recorder and all that goes with it and she tripped over the gate. Now, mind you, you trip over the gate, you're coming to speak, all the inmates are looking at you. The next few moments happened in excruciatingly slow motion. It was difficult to watch. Barbara went flying over the bar and fell flat on her face, the equipment leaving her arms and going off on a flight of its own. It was all made a thousand times worse by the fact that all the prisoners have been sitting in the courtyard waiting for the speaker, arms crossed and eyes narrowed. The guards rushed forward to help Barbara, who rose from the ground with difficulty, brushed the dust off her clothing and tried to cleanse the scrapes to the best of her ability. Oh boy. Yet, while the Rebbitson felt the rush of sympathy for her friend, in Barbara's great moment of embarrassing, there was a silver lining for the perfect speech had suddenly entered the Rebbitson's head, prepared down to the tiniest detail and ready for delivery. Quote, I would like to introduce you to my right-hand woman, Mrs. Barbara Janoff. The Rebbitson said to the assembled crowd of female prisoners where, when everything had quieted down, the girl sat in the square and met her gaze. Let me tell you about Barbara, the Rebbitson continued. She is a highly educated woman who has worked in numerous top-level positions. She is a concert violinist and has performed on some of the most prestigious stages around the world. She is a brilliant woman who is the executive director of my organization. In all honesty, I don't know what I would do without her. And the Rebbitson paused, and all the years we have been working together, I've never ever seen her fall, much less take a spill like the one she just took. But maybe, the Rebbitson continued, maybe it was meant to happen right now, right in this very place, to show you that it is possible for a person to fall, yes, for everyone in the world, and while it is uncomfortable and embarrassing and we try to avoid falling, that's not the important thing. The important thing is that when a person falls, that they get back up again. 
dust themselves off and keep on running. That's the important thing and that's my message for today. Well, I need not tell you, she went a little bit further. I understand many of you women have fallen. We're humans. We have human frailties, human weaknesses. More important is that we have the ability to stand up, to overcome. And she spoke about Rishlakish, quoted the Gemara to them, a man who was a thief, a highwayman, and take a look when he stood up and overcame his difficulties, look who he became. Each and every one of you sitting here today can do tshuva if you desire it's up to you. There's a formula to follow, like everything else in life. What's the formula one of the girls wanted to know? And she spoke about tefillah nesana tekev, tshuva, tefillah, and staka. And she goes on and on. What does it mean tshuva? What does it mean tefillah? What does it mean staka? And one of the girls asked her, Rebbitson, Shiva, I understand, feel I understand, but here we are in prison. We have no money. How can we give charity? And she, the Rebbitson here was fabulous. Charity doesn't only mean money, it means giving of your time, helping others. Maybe you can help another girl who fell and you can help her. You can set an example. You can bring her back to positive experiences. And this talk, the Rebbetson said, was the most rewarding talk she ever gave in her life. And one girl, Sari, who uh, had asked the Rebbetson, who cares about us? We're criminals. We did terrible things. And by the... End of the lecture... The girl said to the Rebbitson, you're going back to Yerushalayim? And the Rebbitson said, yes. And she said, can I give you a kvittel, a pitkit, for the kotel? And the girl, and the Rebbitson said, I'd be honored to slip your note into the kotel. And the girl asked the Rebbitson and Slovi, her daughter, to read it. And they said, are you sure? Yes, I want to be sure that it's proper. And they opened the note. There were three words written on the paper. Elohim Salachli. All right, I don't have to give another comment. When they walked out already, Barbara Janoff was careful and... uh, knew enough to step over the bar and there's actually a picture in the book where she poses stepping over the bar going out to show that she's mastered it but what a powerful story what ability whatever happens something goes wrong something upsets the apple cart think for a minute weave it in That's classic, what just happened. 
And uh, I, I go back in life, I'll tell you what, it brought back memories to me, not happy memories. Excuse me one second. You know, when you get older, I can see life like an endless tunnel, and I, certain things I remember so well. So I remember in uh, 59, the Rub gave a treasure uh, in memory, or it was just think for sure, 59, or it was 60 already. It was in memory of uh, Reb Chaim Heller. No, that was 59. It was memory of the Brisker Rub. That was 60, if I'm not mistaken. The dates can be checked. It, open up my uh, first volume on the Rub, you'll find it exactly. And in the middle of his talk, I remember he was cut off. Someone started shouting. We spoke about this. Someone from Chaim Berlin started shouting at him. You know, you're talking about the Briskarov. Uh, how can you? It's hypocritical. The last thing in the world the Briskarov would want is you to speak about him in Yeshiva University. And it was a very sad moment. And I remember the Rebbitson yelled from upstairs in Lamport. The little section upstairs was used for the women. Take him out, take him out. And Dovi Hartman jumped on this guy. Dovi was a basketball star and a gesunter, a well-to-do individual. And he carried him out. And uh, I, I remember sitting there feeling such pain for the Rav. But uh, didn't overreact. He just went further. He just went further, as if nothing had happened. And that too was a lesson. You can't win them all, and not everyone is going to agree with you. But you have to calmly go further. The worst thing in the world is you should react and maledict and fight in public. Then you wind up a Hollywood movie, not a. Uh, Bentora. All right. That's the Rebbitson. It's quite a story. Okay. Now, th there's a lot that's been published on the Rebbitson. I'm now quoting from publications, essentially uh, uh, Jewish press, and stories about the Rebbitson and where she speaks and where she goes. And here there's an entire story on the Rebetzin going back to Germany, speaking in Germany, bringing both to the community of Berlin. And here too you come to the very delicate issue. Um, I think I told you when uh, the Rebbe's yard site, the 25th yard site, so uh, Yeshiva University reads, I don't even know for sure who, who paid the bill, but let's say reads, brought Malta and myself back to America, and I spoke in about 11 different talks, so everyone different in 11 different locations in memory of the Rav. And the main talk was at the Yeshiva University on Sunday morning, it was a tremendous crowd, I was honored by the presence of Rabbi Shechta, Yibadol L'chaim, Aruchim Tovim, and others like Rabbi Meshit David Tenla, and I gave a proper talk on the Haggadah, teaching our children. So when I was finished, the uh, 
someone there from YU who was in Germany in Berlin came over to me and wanted us, Michael, myself, we should be guests of the Berlin community. And my wife uh, rejected it, absolutely not, we're not going back to Germany. Then Robertson went back to Germany and she was beautiful description of her talk and the impact. And the Robertson too was asked this very question and her answer is very powerful. Uh, it's, uh, no one can hate Germany more than I do. No one can feel more enmity towards the Nazis than I do. I actually suffered. You got to remember the Robertson what she went through. But she said, uh, if there are Jews living there today, I can't desert them. And I have to respect that point of view. And ultimately, what you have in Germany, uh, at least 90% of the Jews living there are Russian emigres. And you have to understand that these Russians really had no background and no Yiddishkeit. All they knew that they were Jews and everyone, you know, put them down in Russia. They had to write their nationality. And uh, they wound up in Germany. Germany made them very comfortable and what Germany offered them, etc., etc. The money, the immigrants there, the housing, uh, the jobs available. It's, it could be uh, uh, on that level that there was more for them on a physical, temporal level than Israel had to offer. And without that extra commitment, understanding, they wound up in Germany. And I have to give the Rebbitzin credit. And we in this very kollel, there was a student here a number of years ago, studied uh, two years, I believe, with me. And uh, he was of Russian origins. And uh, he wanted to get married. And uh, he went to some website that puts Russians, people of Russian origin together. And he married a wonderful girl who became from in Germany. And who knows if one of the aspects of her life was not hearing the Rebetzin speak. Now, when it came to Germany, when it came to the Holocaust, the Rebetzin had one theme, and this may be the quintessential concept of the Rebetzin that everyone remembers. It captures her life, and it can enable you to move forward. And the Rebetzin used to say, "I, my life has been like the life of Noah, the biblical Noah. When you talk about the biblical Noah, what do you have? You have three periods, before the flood, during the flood, and after the flood. You have endless, my Murray Chazal, you can portray Noah, his family, how they built the ark, uh, was he a total tzaddik, partial tzaddik, waited till it started to rain. I'm, I'm alluding to many Midrashim. Then you have Noah in the ark and feeding the animals and the lion getting mad at him, right or wrong. Again, another Midrash. And what was wrong, he was late in bringing food to the lion. And, and uh, this Midrash plays a role, by the way, in the 20th century, if you know what I'm referring to, with Satma and Rabbi Kutna. I believe I spoke about it in my lectures on Rabbi Kutna, but leave it for another time. And uh, then after the art goes out, rebuilds, did he rebuild properly, the vineyard, 
afterwards, Shem, Yefet, etc. There's so much to talk about. She says, my life has three periods. Before the Holocaust, during the Holocaust, and after the Holocaust. And you see, that's very, very powerful. Of course, when she speaks about her youth, you describe a world in Europe. At times, we over-describe it. In other words, uh, we, uh, I remember my Rebbe, Reb Henech Fishman, who I'm going to dedicate my next volume to, Reb Henech, my eighth grade Rebbe, Shanghai survivor. So Reb Henech, I, I write about this actually in Washington. Reb Henech says to us, uh, to me, I was very close to him, and he says, uh, he says in America, when do the shoes fill up? Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. He says in Mir, there was many people in shul on Wednesday night as on Leil Kamnidre. And I got to tell you, I never believed him. Only in Israel, there, here, I finally saw maybe Reb Hanach is right. But you see, we're describing a beautiful situation. Was Europe really on that level? Mir might have been. But generally, Europe, if the World War I, Oh, the inroads against Torah religion. But nevertheless, when you described your youth, your childhood, your father, your grandparents, the shul, the type of Jews, what, what Hungary was like, it hits home. It's emotional. There once was a world that was different than the way the Jews live today in New York City. Then you go further, excluding Borough Park and parts of Flatbush. Let me not be too critical. But uh, once was a world that was different. Then the Holocaust, what we went through, the physical, physical destruction. And then you speak after the Holocaust, will we allow a spiritual Holocaust to happen? By the way, she's one of the first to use the term spiritual holocaust. You have to give her credit. She may even have a copyright on it. And, and this, this was very powerful. And if anyone would ask me what characterizes the Rebbitson, I would say my life was like the life of Noah. Three periods before, during, and after. And this was the Rebbitson. Now, I'm not finished. I... Uh, just want to go one. I, I just want to mention, out of respect, these are all people I knew intimately, personally, Maury. Out of respect, uh, her two brothers. The younger one unfortunately died in the first wave of uh, COVID, they call it in America, Corona. Uh, his from Chabad, when he died, Rab Yonatan Binyamin Jungreis says here, 80s, Brooklyn. I would estimate uh, he died uh, a year and a half ago approximately. I would estimate he was uh, about 80, 81. Okay? And uh, he was the youngest brother. He didn't play as big a role as uh, Esther, Esther was the top player in the family. The older brother played a bigger role. The older brother we'll talk about in a minute. And uh, this brother actually was 
what he went through, he was a kid yet. It wasn't like Esther and Yaakov. And uh, he spent many years learning. He uh, studied at, in America, and from America he went to Israel, studied many years in Ponovich. Then he came back to YU, and he's a Ritz Musmach, he's a colleague of yours. He's going to get, where you're going to get smicha is where he got smicha. He was particularly close to Reb David Lipschitz. And uh, those of you from you, uh, yeah, Charlie, you understand me, Reb David was a very warm person, and it enveloped, it enveloped uh, Broody with Varimkite. Later, he joins his brother. His brother went to, when the parents came to America, the Jungreisers, the survivors, they wound up in Canarsie. Canarsie, they built a yeshiva, they had a shul. The shul may have been there before, but I believe they're the ones who organized the yeshiva. And uh, Yaakov, who was born in 1933, he's uh, four years older than I am, he should live and be well. Yaakov was the one who went to Canarsie, built what was there. He is the founder and rabbi of the Israel Center of Canarsie, the founder and director of Yeshivat Ateret Israel Day School. And he brought his brother Brudy there, who was the rabbi in the shul. In other words, uh, Yaakov was the top individual, and Brudy was the rabbi in the shul. Yaakov, if you recall our lectures, he is the one who saved the, um, the, the present, uh, what Rebbe is it? The, the, the Tselem Rebbe. Remember the story in the concentration, in, in when the ghetto and the child was born and there was no diapers and medicine and, and milk and, and everything, everything you needed for the baby uh, he was the one who jumped over the fence, went into the Aryan area, and succeeded in bringing back everything to keep the baby alive. And uh, Yaakov, uh, the present Salem Rebbe, was always makitayva to this young kid at the time, obviously eight or nine, and yet risked his life to save the life of this little baby. So this is the family. Okay, now... I just want to shift gears and tell you one more story about uh, Esther Jungreis. And also here, it's when she died, there was a big article in Jewish press, and the story is told. And this story, I want to give a little background and make it very meaningful, uh, particularly for we people here, uh, most of us in this room, or Olim, uh, and uh, I always say Olim Chadashim. When I mean Olim Chadashim, I'm here, it's my 53rd year. But nevertheless, we didn't grow up here, we didn't network here, and uh, we're always slightly on the outside. And here I'm going to give you a little bit background, because I said something yesterday, or last week, I forget already, and people looked at me, uh, what are you talking about? And they said there are three people, oh, I said it yesterday, three people that I greatly respect that had uh, tr tremendous influence on me in my life. Number one, the Rav. All right, everyone understands the Rav. I don't have to elaborate. Number three was Nechama Leibowitz, one of the great gifts that the Rebani Shleilin gave me coming in Aliyah 
was to become a good friend and colleague of Nechama Leibowitz. Actually brought her into the Kolel to teach back in, when the formal program began in 78. The uh, middle person, I mentioned the name, uh, Crow, Arye Crow. And the people I saw who, Arye Crow, okay. So let me give you a little background. Arye Crow came in Aliyah with his mother the mid-30s, running away from Russia. His father was a sheikhid. He joined them a year, a year or two later. And Ayakrow was a B'nai Akiva kid here. The stories are legendary about him. The, uh, uh, that once they had color wars and he was captured by Shoma Hatzair. Again, I hope you know what I'm talking about. Shoma that basically doesn't exist today. Although merits represents their thinking. And uh, they wouldn't uh, release Aryeh for Shabbos from captivity unless he saluted their flag and re repeated their pledge. And Aryeh refused. He remained in captivity over Shabbos, but he wouldn't salute their flag or repeat their pledge. That was Aryeh. Later, he's one of the founders of Kibbutzad, which has been in the news, unfortunately, for the last... 10, 20 years down south, Kibbutzad, and uh, Aryeh became the, very capable, became the Maskal of the Kibbutz. Maskal of the Kibbutz, um, he, he was the Maskalir Klali, he ran the Kibbutz. Now, according to Kibbutz laws, if you uh, work in the kibbutz for 25 years, you're entitled for a trip overseas that the kibbutz pays for. So in 1965, Aye had worked for the kibbutz 25 years, and he was entitled to a trip overseas, and uh, he selected to go to Moscow. Why, Ellie, did he want to go to Moscow? Because his two sisters who had survived the Holocaust were living in Moscow. And Kibbutz said, fine. 65 is before 67. Groups were still going from Israel to Russia. And his two sisters came into Moscow from where they lived to meet with him. And Aryeh describes his arrival. And mind you, what was his native language? Tell me, Zach, what was his native language? What's your native language? English. English. What's his native language? Russian. But he had lived in Israel, and not the way we Americans live. I describe myself, and I believe no one will disagree with me. Charlie will agree, and Morty will agree. We're we speak English, we speak Hebrew. There are Israelis, who, there are Americans who came among them, my own students, who only spoke Hebrew. You hear, they, I meet their children today, or grandchildren, it's like they never, there's no American blood in them whatsoever. But I go with the Ramban sheet, I've lectured on it, and spoken about the Ramban, and preached on the Ramban. Look it up. So, Aryeh, uh, he said, the first two days, he had trouble speaking Russian. 
he understood most of it and he had trouble and then he said by the third day suddenly his Russian came back to him as if he had never left Russia and he was able to use it because what happened in Russia is very simple the anyone over 40 or in 1965 I would say anyone over 30 his native language was Yiddish Russian Jews anyone younger his native language was Russian and this was very important if you can speak Russian you can reach them and this leads me to just tell you I had an ongoing I write about this too in Washington had an ongoing controversy or dialogue or dispute call it what you wish with Nechamalevich she was upset that I speak English and I used to tell Nechama I need Sadikli Tvosotam I have to grab them and I have one or two years in which to influence them to come in Aliyah and if I don't speak their native language, I don't reach their hearts. I don't say, Ali, I want the dialogue, but it was an ongoing dialogue. Teku, teku, teku. I said, Ivrit, and you'll do achakach. Once you come in Aliyah, you'll learn Hebrew, you'll manage. But I have to reach your heart, I have to inspire you. Ah, so one of the Rebbitson's trips, one of the most emotional trips for her, was to Budapest, to Hungary. And here she comes to Hungary, and I have a whole description here, but I can paraphrase it. Big crowd waiting for her. And she begins, she's speaking the language that she speaks best, English. She's going with the assumption that, you know, all over the world people know English. And she notices that there are people in the audience know you speak. I once had this, I spoke in Caesarea. And uh, right in front of me is an elegant Jew sitting there. And I, I see he's turning to the other person. And every other word they're translating for him into French. So she evidently saw that people are turning to their neighbors and she started to think, look, Hung the Hungarian language is my native street language. In the house they spoke Yiddish. Outside of the house all they spoke was Hungarian. And she thought for a moment and she broke into Hungarian. And she said it was very difficult for her. It didn't come that easily. But the more she spoke, the easier it became. It's like she was a kid again. And the audience went wild. In other words, I, I just saw a stupid movie out of the 1930s, and those are the best movies to watch. They're, they're, there's no sex, and there's, they don't walk around naked. And, and this is a whole series of movies that deal with human conflict and, and always have a happy ending. And in this movie, it was fabulous. I told Malk, it is Minishamayim. I'm lecturing on the Rebbitson. Watch the movie, the guy sells insurance. And he wants to do this big deal with this big firm. And he tells his wife, they're Hungarians. He's all Jews in the 1930s, all Jews. The Hungarians, 
and, and we have to make this dinner for them, and we're going to call in a Hungarian caterer and Hungarian cake. And, and he teaches his wife how to say a blessing in Hungarian. When you start the meal, you say, like, for our health in Hungarian, whatever it is, I can't even pick it up. And she, do you know, do you know? And she practices, and the meal begins, and she lifts up a wine glass and says these words, and the ten people sitting around her go crazy with joy. And for the next minute, all you hear is Hungarian spoken. And I said to my wife, that's exactly what happened with the Rebetzin. So, to reiterate this part of the Shia, this was the Rebetzin. Uh, we owe her a vote of thanks, a vote of gratitude. In Israel today, the greatest preachers, the greatest speakers are the Rebetzins. Uh, no one equals them in popularity. They've come up with the challah baking and tens of thousands of women have been touched by these projects, by the outreach. One of them uh, speaks shopping. I said to my wife, what's she going to do after Corona? People stop shopping. Everything is online today. It's a different world. All right, she'll have to talk about shopping online that relaxes you. It's a feminine with all that we women have to do in life, the children, the husband, the home. Baruch Hashem. Okay. But I don't know whether they know it or don't know it. Here they give, you know who they give credit to, who taught the women how to speak. Rebetzin Kenevsky, Zichrona, Batshevet Kenevsky, Zechit Sadeket Lavrachav Avliyashiv's daughter. She, you can see her online, by the way. Uh, ah, she was the first one I know of a woman. And it's interesting. This is this is a Litvisha Rosh Yeshiva Rav's wife, daughter. She became a public figure. Knew who else? Who has got a Hasidic soul? Oh, Mori, is there any Hasidus in your family? What do you have? Where do you come from? Satma, or we'll reach Satma shortly. I need a Belza. No? Morty, the Belza Rebetzin. What do you know about her? You know or you don't know? The present Belza Rebetzin holds Tish and Tish takes Kvitlach. You should, from men, not just women, you should see some of the video clippage on the present Belka, Belza Rebetzin. Ah, oh, she's an Ishiyut par excellence. So it could be in Israel, all these great women speakers, and by the way, they all are on the borderline between the religious Zionist camp and the Haredi camp. It's interesting that they're able to reach out to both, to both. It's very fascinating. But they don't know that before Rebetzin Kanevsky and before the Bells of Rebetzin, you had Esther Rice. From what I saw, uh, uh, I was sent a link to Slavi, uh, her, her daughter. She continues and she's powerful like the mother, but I think she's much more limited to the United States. I haven't heard that she spoke in public in Israel. Today in Israel, I don't think they need an American woman because there's so many Israeli women who fill the role. 
Okay, I hope I have done justice to three individuals that I had the scut to know personally. Meikahana I was very close to. Uh, for, uh, for how many years? Uh, from, from the early 50s through the day he was assassinated. Shlem uh, Lekabach, I also know, but not as much, not as intimately as I knew Mayer. But I can still see in my mind that Duvi Hartman at the Brit for Duvi Hartman's son, Daniel, heads up the Hartman Institute today. So I see right before me, there's Duvi, a few people away is Shlomala, and they wink at each other. They haven't knew each other from Lakewood. And he pulls out the guitar and starts to entertain. It was a moment in time. That was in the Bronx where Duvi was rabbi. And uh, over the years, a number of times I interacted with Shlomala. Uh, Esther Jungreis, I knew already from B'nai Akiva, followed her, her brothers, her, followed, knew, again, not as close as I was to Meir Hana, but nevertheless, I knew what was in her world. Did they succeed? If you recall, I finished so many years of lectures, Maury, for your edification, how did I get involved in this? Everything, the, have you read Washington? Have you studied Washington? You know what I'm talking about? I'm familiar with it. You are familiar. So you know in Washington, I tell you that uh, the Rav taught me, teach what you don't know. And everything I've taught on Sunday, including yesterday, is what I don't know. You understand what I'm saying? No one ever taught that. I worked it out, all right. With the, the Monday class, I taught everything I don't know. And then my mother took ill, and Rabbi Lichtenstein took ill. And unfortunately, for the first time in my life, I realized how old I was. And I said, you know something, you better get out of your system what you do know and not too many other people know. So that's how I began 10, 11 years ago, the history of Torah in the United States. So I finished out a great deal. You can ask, go to YU Torah, take off seven years and just listen to the Shira. So when I finished the Torah Vedas and Torah Masora and all that went with it, I felt I had to deal with three people who wanted to change the world. Go back and hear my introduction to these lectures last year. Three people who wanted to change the world. You've got to remember, we grew up in very different times. Holocaust and State of Israel. It, it was a different world for these individuals and for myself as well. And I felt I had to portray them. And I want to ask a question. Did they change the world? Did they succeed? And uh, the answer is very simple. Yes and no. On one hand, we're fighting a tremendous battle today. Everyone is laughing at being a person of Torah, of ethical, moral standards. <laughs> Could you imagine that in Hank in West Hempstead they told the teachers of Limude Kodesh that you can't talk publicly against homosexuality 
because it's against the laws of the state of New York. I spoke once at the Young Israel of Kew Gardens Hills and said a few words about what Torah life is about. And the rabbi, who's no left-winger, Rabbi Yoel Joel Schoenfeld, who studied in Lakewood, I don't know if he has a bachelor's, what we spoke about yesterday. And it's in the news right now. I sent many, many printouts today on, on the very problem that I alluded to yesterday. He said, I couldn't believe my ears, Thank God Rabbi Rakevich said it, because I would be afraid. I can't believe it. So we have a tremendous, tremendous attack on Torah and every value. Could you imagine, man, I'll show you in a minute. Could you imagine what type of wedding we just had in the conservative movement? So we're not going to win it all. But that they did have success 100%. And here you have to understand what success is about. When you influence one person, look down the tunnel 50 years later. That person is surrounded by 100 direct descendants. 99% Shomrei Torah Mitzvah. Wow. What will you contribute to the Jewish people? The people inspired by Mayor, by Shleimelov, by Esther. It's unbelievable. I take you back to that dialogue which I write about in Washington or debate or discussion with the Reform and Conservative Rabbi in Irvington, New Jersey. Oh, the place was mobbed may have been seven, eight hundred people. The rabbis are gladiators in the ring. And I tell you, it was an unbelievable night. The reform rabbi couldn't believe it. The reform rabbi said, right after ten minutes into the dialogue, I have to withdraw. I'm no match for rabbis Rothkopf and Friedman. They know much more than I do. He said it publicly. Ah. Then the Catholic rabbi, and I come home, and Malchus says, well, what are you wasting your time, exhausting yourself? Who do you influence? What do you do? And generally, my wife is always right. That night, she was wrong. One family became totally from one and all because of the Catholic rabbi comment. And I later found out they had a flock of children here, and now grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So when you talk of influence, call Hamakayim Nefeshachat Kiilu Kiyem Olem Male, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin. So I have to answer you. Yes, thank God we had them. They did succeed. Total success, no one has yet. When someone will have total success, Rakefit will be the first one to line up as a disciple of that person. But until then, we have to try our best, different ways. There's no black and white answer. Every human being is different. And I come back again to Rakefit's witticism. Halacha is a frame, the picture you paint in accordance with your abilities and understandings. And I just want to show you one, one little 
piece of information. <sighs> Sickening. The first for conservative movement, women rabbis tie not in same-sex marriages. And uh, Rabbi Becca Walker marrying Rabbi Ariela Rosen. And the wedding, the officiating rabbi was another lesbian rabbi. And, excuse me? They're dancing they're, they're a mitzvah tans with a handkerchief. I, I, I tell you, it is sickening, frightening. And this is, they want the Kotel, women of the wall, and our politicians fawning over them. This is Torah, this is future, this can perpetuate, this is normal. Why is Corona with us? Why does God want to destroy the world? I think the only thing that holds the Rebani Shalom back is the fact that he swore after May Noach, not the whole world, but only part of the world. All right. By the way, Putin came out with a big talk. It's on the websites that he admires the Jews who live authentic Jewish lives. So at least we have a friend in Putin who starts to, I wish he'd come to this class and sit down. He knows English. So it's in and learn in so he'll be okay. Rabbi Lazar, send him my way to this classroom. My dear students, we finished up the Rebetzin today. We dealt with Madison Square Garden. We actually saw a stub, a button that was given out. We heard a little bit of her talk. The story with Barbara Janoff tripping and how the Rebetzin turned it around and utilized it Litova. What a message for us as public speakers. I have to say, Germany, do we go, don't we go? I have to bow to my wife, but I have to be honest. Thank God the Rebetzin did go. Whatever good she did is another Jewish family, another Jewish family, and we already have quite a few Russian Jews who, believe it or not, became from in Germany. The younger generation you can speak to. Older people are cynical, set in their ways, more worried about money, but what a compliment what you can achieve. Hungary is a very interesting story. It ties us together with Aryeh Kroll and the language we speak best, the native language. You're speaking, speak their language, throw in a word or two. Few Russian words. That movie was very powerful. It had a fabulous message. Lachaim in Hungarian, a whole little blessing. And the minute she says it, this guy's wife, this famous actress from the 20s, 30s, ah, how everyone lights up. As B'nai Torah, we have a lot to learn. Gentlemen, no one will be allowed in the class next week without a strangle. Monday requires a strangle. Uh, Maury, you want to know something? In Hungary, the Satma didn't wear strangles. The Rebbe wore a strangle. In America, they all wear strangles. Why? Why? We had a student here last year, 
wonderful to Moshe Shapira, right? Noah. Noah, Noah Shapira, right. Moshe, someone else. I, I wore a strimal on Shabbos and Gris Kolel. Baruch Hashem. Don't bring any prejudice. We're going to really try to understand who the Satmarav was, what he thought, his message caught on. If I convinced you to be Satma Hasidim and with a Satma outlook, I'll blow it away at the very end with one Rambam. And not a Rambam that contradicts himself, a Rambam that's black and white and says it all. And it's a shame that the Torah world doesn't know that Rambam. Oh, if we did, we'd have unbelievably less machloket. So, Be'ezrat Hashem, next Sunday we pick up again and uh, we go further and deal with a little problem. Are you allowed to smoke? That will lead into the problem, are you allowed to do a diet? I don't know of too many poskim who dealt with this, but Menashe Klein deals with it. Monday, we go to Hungary, the world of Satma, Munkac, etc., Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I just want to tell Mori Mori, oh, he's got, got a call. Tell him, Charlie. I just want to tell you in advance, if you're planning any trips, the last Sunday and Monday of Hanukkah, there are no classes. Chris is closed down. So it's not the first Sunday is Erev Hanukkah, Monday's first day. But the Sunday, Monday afterwards, Chris is closed down. And Elliot, if Aaron Kefit does anything but right, I'm going to be very angry with him. You follow? Only to write on that Monday, because my wife is working out that I'm so busy learning, and uh, I have a big Yetzirah for learning. I don't push it aside. I can't have. I don't want to apologize, but it's a big Yetzirah, because I should be writing what I'm writing, but I have to write. Uh, Charlie will fill you in what I have to say. Are there any questions? I want to welcome Ellie and give him a big mazel tov. Wow, three children, Kanayan Hara. But you still got to equal. My eldest grandson has five now. We just had a Brit. So the challenge is there. When you hit five, ask me what's doing and we'll see if we go further. What's the name of the baby? Oh, they didn't have the Brit yet. What's the name of your son named after Arya, is it? Ari Shalom. Ari Shalom. Shalom. I told my wife that it's named after, and she got all upset. I said, no, no, there's another name too. It's a play on the name. Okay, until we meet again in health and happiness, that's for Danya. Now I have to deal with the great world looking at me. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Can you speak? Anyone have any questions? Questions? Okay, uh, Yoshu, I just want to tell Rabbi Grinstein, I got on Rabbi Moshe, very interesting that uh, they quote him from the Eidach HaReidit, and Baruch Hashem, uh, I hope Rabbi Moshe Salavajik is correct, because it solves many, many problems for us. That's all I can say. Until we meet again in health and happiness, Dasvidanya. Thank you very, very much.